took you so long. Mom, Dad, Grandpa's here, bye! I wish you could still drive, Grandpa. Sorry, we're closed. You're cute, but come on, it's Christmas Eve. Fine, five minutes. blood of his trench. It was the early morning of December 25th, 1914, and a hundred yards away were the German forces sitting in the mud and the blood of their trench. And as Private Sumter sat there, he clutched his rifle, and his thoughts went to a different place because he heard a song. He recognized the song, but he didn't recognize the words. And he started humming the song, and then it, he realized that these German soldiers who had been trying to kill him just hours before, who were just less than 100 yards away, were singing Silent Night. And as they were singing in German, he decided to sing in English. And pretty soon, his band of brothers on the British side, sitting in the mud and the blood, started praising Jesus with a song called Silent Night. Well, when that song finished, the Germans belted out a different Christmas carol. So the British joined in, and they belted out a different Christmas carol. And this went on for a while until finally a British soldier got the courage to, to do something. He grabbed a handful of cigarettes, and he held them above his head, and he walked out right into the center of no man's land. A handful of hours before this, it would have been a suicide mission. But as he stands out there with these cigarettes in his hand, the story is told that a German soldier picked up a bottle of wine. And he walked out in the middle of no man's land and they face off with each other. No weapons, they shake hands, they exchange gifts. At that time, both trenches, they drop their weapons, they come out into the middle of no man's land, the ugliest place on the planet at that time. And they start exchanging gifts. Anything they had, they'd give to the other side. Pins, candy, cigarettes, spirits. And then all of a sudden, a British soldier brings out a soccer ball. And we all know that in Europe, soccer is the religion of Europe, always has been, always will be. And that battlefield, that battlefield that had been known for its ugliness became a place in which enemies experienced joy for a very short period. Several soldiers ended up recording it in their diaries, one German lieutenant wrote home these words. He said, We Germans really roared when Augusta Wind revealed that the Scots wore no underwear under their kilts. <laughs> the, the game finished with a score of three goals to two in favor of Fritz against Tommy. 
And what I love about this story is that for a few hours in no man's land, it's like God reached out with His hand and He just shut off the darkness. And He turned on the light and He pointed these men to His Savior, to the Savior, Jesus. Some of these men would say that it was the most heartfelt gift they had ever received, not only from the soldiers of the other side, but especially from God. That, that it was if God Himself ordained that moment and gave them a gift from the heart of God, and they would remember it for the rest of their lives, however short or long those lives would be. Have you ever considered that, that phrase, a heartfelt gift ordained by God? Have you ever considered that some of the finest gifts we can give come from the heart? And have you ever considered that God Himself wants gifts from the heart because God loves that cheerful giver? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today as we kick off our three-week series called Finest Gifts. It's in this series in which we're looking at the story of the wise men, and they come and they, they deliver three gifts to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This week, I'm going to be talking about gold because there's symbology in each, each one of these gifts. Next week and the week after, Pastor Bob is going to be talking about frankincense and myrrh. Please be praying for Pastor Bob. He's been on a mission trip to Hawaii. It's been really hard. He's been spending a lot of time on the beach talking to the dolphins about Jesus, and re-entry's tough, so pray for him, please. So he's going to be talking about frankincense and myrrh. I'm going to dial in on gold. So today I'm going to be spending a lot of time setting up this series. I'm going to be setting up the, the, the whole series, so I'm going to need your grace because I am going to blow away your idea of the Eurocentric, American-centric nativity scene. So I'll need your grace on that. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. Jesus is king. As such, he desires and deserves our finest gifts. Jesus is king. Jesus is the Messiah. As such, he desires and deserves our finest gifts. Well, God's got a lot, of, lot to say about that. Uh, we're going to start out in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to hang out in the first 13 verses. So Matthew 2, verses 1 through 13. Let me set the scene for what's going on as you're turning in your Bibles too there. For 400 years, God is silent. He speaks to the prophet Malachi, and he says, I'm going to send someone to prepare the way, to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And then crickets, nothing, 400 years of silence. God breaks the silence. He speaks through an angel to a guy named Zechariah. Zechariah is a Jewish priest and an old Jewish priest, and he has an old wife and she's barren, and God says, you're going to have a son, and that son is going to prepare the way. That son we know is John, or John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is born. Six months later, Jesus is born, and he's born in this town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a very important place. It's a speck of dust on the map, but it's a very important place when it comes to prophecy. Bethlehem in Hebrew means bread of life. Jesus would say, I'm the bread of life. Notice Jesus didn't say, I'm the kale of life. Notice he didn't say, I'm the cauliflower of life, because Jesus loves carbs. I am the bread of life. Can I get an amen? amen? Thank you. So Jesus is fulfilling multiple prophecies as he's born in this place called Bethlehem. Let's talk about the writer. The writer of this gospel is Matthew. The writer of this story is Matthew. Matthew is Jewish, and he's writing to a Jewish audience because he's got one thing in mind. He wants to prove to this Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is king, and as such, he desires 
and deserves our finest gifts. It's why the, 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 the book of Matthew has more Old Testament prophecies, especially about the coming Messiah, than Mark, Luke, or John. Prophecies fulfilled and, and brought out of the book of Daniel, out of the book of Isaiah. And what we're going to find out today in today's teaching is that God takes the wisdom of the world and He flips it on its head. Because only God would show us that a king would come to serve. That a, a, a God, a king, Jesus, could be merciful yet also just. He, he could be very simple yet also very, very complex. So we pick up our story today. Jesus most likely is 12 to 18 months old when the wise men show up. Wait, what? Yeah, nativity scene, <laughs> crashed. I'm excited about this teaching. So here we go, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Notice there's no mention of three kings. We know it's a plural, that there's more than one. No mention of three. I think we get that whole concept of three wise men from the, con from the, the, the fact that there were three gifts. So we assign one gift per wise man, which, okay, that's, that's a theory. But uh, it looks like there's more than one, but we don't know how many. So let's talk about these wise men. These wise men are called magi. They belong to a group called magistanes. The magi are very important men. They're very wise men. They're trained in astrology. They're trained in, in linguistics and languages, multiple languages. And they're trained in the advanced sciences of the day. And somehow, they have knowledge of Old Testament prophecy. How did they get that? A lot of different theories are out there. One theory, is, as you may recall last week, and I talked about when, when God took the Jewish people to Babylon. He said, you guys have been disobedient. You, you lack faith, hope, and trust. I'm taking you, to, taking you to the woodshed for 70 years. And you're going to go to Babylon for 70 years. It's going to suck to be you. But I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring you back. So one theory is that these wise men were just descendants of the Jewish people because some of the Jewish people stayed back in Babylon after they were repatriated. That these were just descendants from the Jewish nation that stayed there. And that's how they got the Old Testament prophecies. It's a theory. There are holes in it, but it's a theory nonetheless. Another idea is one that Pastor Bob nailed really hard a couple years ago when we did the book of Daniel. Because remember, Daniel was part of that exiled group. And Daniel actually became one of those wise men. And, and the theory is that Daniel would have taught the Magi those Old Testament prophecies. And those prophecies are passed along with probably the manuscripts throughout history. I believe that one personally. But yet another theory is because these guys were so smart, they were the advanced scientists of the day. They could speak multiple languages. Because of that, they probably had access to documents of other religions. So that's how they knew the Old Testament prophecies. And that's okay. But the bottom line is all of that wisdom that they had, it couldn't get them home. There had to be a divine hand in this. Why is that? Because they are there to worship Jesus. And these magi show up going through Jerusalem to this speck on the map called Beth Bethlehem. The magi, the magistanes, had three things they had to do. They would advise kings, they'd appoint kings, and they'd anoint kings. They'd advise, appoint, and anoint. Think about that. They're appointing and anointing a king. 
And they're coming to worship Jesus, who is king. Jesus is king. He desires and deserves our finest gifts. Let's keep going. Verse 3, they show up in Jerusalem. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, that they had arrived, as was everyone in Jerusalem. All of Jerusalem is a buzz. Let me bust the nativity scene again. Three dudes showing up on a camel aren't going to have a town of 600,000, which was the size of Jerusalem at that time. Three dudes showing up on a camel with little boxes of gifts. It's not going to cause the town of Jerusalem, the town of 600,000, to be a buzz. The Magi, the, Magist- the Magistanes, were looked at as royalty. And royalty in that day rode around on stallions. Speculation. They show up in Bethlehem. It's not three guys. It's most likely a whole lot of guys. And if they've got gifts and they're showing up on stallions like invading armies would show up on, and they've got these gifts, they've got a guard contingent with them. Speculation. All speculation. That, though, would cause all of Jerusalem to be a buzz. And King Herod is deeply disturbed. That word disturbed is very important. It means to shake with great fear. King Herod is shaking with great fear because they're there to worship Jesus. They're asking questions. Where is he? Where's the king of the Jews? And King Herod's like, wait a second, I'm the king of the Jews last time I heard. So he's deeply disturbed. Let's talk about King Herod. King Herod is part Jewish, but he's not a practicing Jew. And so he's, he's got a lot of issues. And those issues is that he's a very jealous man. King Herod is a guy that, that just practices evil from morning to night. He has some sons. He kills three of them. He has ten wives, and his favorite wife, he kills her too. Murder. Not a nice guy. He's a very evil ruler. In fact, Caesar Augustus of, of that time, Caesar Augustus was the, the, the ruler of the Roman Empire. He said, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's own son. Now, he did do some good things. He, he brought peace to Palestine. He, uh, he, he built the temple, the same temple that Jesus, three decades later, would walk into, and he'd flip the table saying, this is my father's house. It's a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves. He'd cut taxes when times were tough. Thirty-plus years ago, I was studying in then the Soviet Union, now, now Russia. I was working on a master's degree, and I'm sitting there talking to this old Russian dude. And we're talking about Joseph Stalin, one of the, the most ruthless dictators of all time. Killed millions of people, especially Christians. It, evil man. And we're, I'm talking to this, the, this old Russian guy, and he says, Yes, Kip, I know he did some bad things, but he made the trains run on time. And his point was, hey, he did all these bad things, but he did some good things too. Well, you could say the same about Herod. But all that evil overshadows any good that he did. And Herod is deeply disturbed. And when Herod shakes, all of Jerusalem shakes. Let's keep going. Verses 4 through 6. He, Herod, called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, the scribes and Pharisees, and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And he's going to quote the prophet Micah, Micah 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. Remember, Judah's a very small town. 
or uh, Bethlehem's a very small town. For a ruler, a Messiah, will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Okay, so Herod's Jewish, and he doesn't know the prophecies. So he calls in the ones who would, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees are saying, oh yeah, the Messiah is supposed to come from here in Bethlehem. God has a two by four. And he's smacking these religious leaders in the head saying, guys, I'm here. It's time. And they don't get it. Then you've got these wise men, these magi, who come from Persia, some of the wisest men in the world. But wisdom couldn't get them home. Wisdom couldn't get them to Bethlehem. They had Old Testament Scripture, and that was good, but that wouldn't get, get them all the way to Bethlehem. They had to have God's intervention. C.S. Lewis, a long time ago, said that all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. That all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Wisdom, some wisdom is eternal. Look at the book of Proverbs. Scripture is eternal. We, we know that out of the book of Revelation. The book of Proverbs, that's eternal. Some wisdom is eternal, but most wisdom is not eternal. Don't believe me? Let's go back 50 years. Think of the size of a computer 50 years ago. The, the mainframe of a computer is what? Half the size of this room. And then fast forward to today, and your, your smartphone that can fit on your hand is a computer. An iPad, very small. Wisdom's not eternal. Think about the, the, the big brick cell phone from the 1990s, you know, hello. Then fast forward to the 2000s, you got the flip phone. Then you got the slide phone with the little things on it. That was really cool, but now we've got this smartphone. All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Think about medicine. Go back to the 1950s and look at medicine now. Compare the two. What's my point? My point is 50 years from now, the wisdom of the world is going to be out of date because all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Wisdom couldn't get them home. It took God's divine hand to get them home, and they're coming to worship a king. Verses 7 and 8. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Herod's lying. Herod is a snake. Herod is all about his power. He, he said, refer to me as Herod the, Herod the Great. And he's the exact opposite of what God sees as great because God takes the wisdom of the world and he flips it on its head. You see, for God, greatness to go, to go up is really to go down. To get to up, you have to go down. The way to get rich is to give it all away. The way to get power is to serve. And when you're going through something really, really horrible, what do you do? You hit your knees and you praise God. God flips the wisdom of the world on its head. Tim Keller, a great theologian, a guy I rely on a lot with, with my teachings that I do, he said these words, from the beginning, God would take Jesus, the most influential person in the world, and break up the wisdom of the world. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. The wisdom couldn't get the wise men home to Bethlehem. So they leave Herod. Look what happens, verses 9 and 10. After this interview with Herod, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them, and it stopped. It stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. 
I've got a lot of non-Christian friends, especially from my military time, and when I, I, I talk to them about Jesus or they have questions, they have a big question about this. How could a star show up and guide these wise men? There's no way. There's no way. And I say, yes, there is a way. Yahweh. And so I tell these guys, think about this. Jesus is born. Forty years before this, Julius Caesar, who's the head of the Roman Empire, is assassinated. Right before he's assassinated, he names his great-nephew Caesar Augustus, the same guy that said, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his own son. He names Caesar Augustus as the ruler of the Roman Empire. And the day he's appointed, the day he's anointed, at that time, there's a supernova a comet on steroids. It's the brightest star that had lasted the longest time in the history of mankind that had been written at that time. For seven days, this, this star shines. What are the magi? They're astrologers. It, it's not unreasonable that God could take a star that would shine and these astrologers would follow the star. At that time, when Caesar Augustus was, was anointed as the ruler of the Roman Empire, there was a saying that came out, and that saying was this, when a king is born, a great star shines. When a king is born, a great star shines. So when there's this great star shining, they're always looking for a king. It's not unreasonable. It's not unreasonable that logic would make this happen. That wisdom, you follow wisdom and it gets you there, but it won't. Wisdom's not going to get you home. God had to have his, his hand in all of this. He had to direct them directly to this speck on the map called Bethlehem. And they're there, the intellectual elite of the time. The wisest men on the planet are there to worship Jesus. That means you don't have to check your brain at the door to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, they entered the house, okay, not a manger, nativity scene blown away. They entered the house a house, and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Look what they did. They saw, they bowed, they worshiped. They came in and they saw, then they bowed, then they worshiped. They didn't give gifts. In that culture, you'd show up to see a king and you'd present the gifts to someone to take to a king and he'd decide if he was going to see you. The wise men knew the culture of the time. But they didn't do that first thing they did when they saw, when they came face to face with Emmanuel, God with us, they hit their knees and they worshiped Him. They'd be known in their hearts, not for their gifts, but in their hearts, they'd be known for their worship of God. And this is a very important truth we need to land on, the, on today. True wisdom is found in the heart of worship. For in the heart of worship, we will meet Jesus. They were worshiping from the heart. True wisdom is found in the heart of worship. They saw, they bowed, and they worshiped, and they met Jesus. But get this, they had never seen any of Jesus' miracles. They had never heard His words, yet there was a divine revelation, and they knew they had to worship Jesus. You got these scribes and Pharisees. And they know the, the Old Testament scriptures. They know the prophecies. God's hitting them with a baseball bat, and they totally miss Jesus. Folks, my fellow Christ followers out there who, who spend a lot of time reading scripture and we get scripture in our minds, you can have all that scripture in your head and still miss Jesus. If you don't take that critical journey 
of 18 inches south from your head to your heart. At the most, you'll know a lot of truth. At the most, you'll probably be pretty arrogant. But until it gets into your heart, that's when Jesus takes that knowledge and He transforms you with grace and truth. You miss Jesus when you fail to worship Him from your heart. Let's finish up verse 11. They saw, they bowed, and they worshiped. Then they opened their treasure chest and they gave Him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They gave Him gifts from the heart. These were the finest gifts of the time. And remember, Jesus is King. As such, He desires and deserves our finest gifts. As we step into the Christmas season, I want you to think about this. Gifts without love are gifts without meaning. Gifts without love are gifts without meaning. How many are you willing to to be like me and, and raise your hand and say, I'm giving some Christmas gifts to some people I don't even like? Yeah. Gifts without love are gifts without meaning. It's like you go to Oriental Trade Company and you buy that, you know, box of of plastic spinners for $3 and it has 100 of them, so you give them to 100 of your friends. Gifts without love are gifts without meaning. These wise men show up and they're giving a gift of meaning and they're giving a gift of love. One of my best gifts I've ever gotten, uh, my daughter Katie got me this past Father's Day. She knew I was coming off my anxiety meds. I'd been on anxiety meds for about a year and she knew that I would be like, so she bought me an $8 fidget spinner. One of the best gifts I've ever gotten in my life. Gifts without love are gifts without meaning. So these wise men show up and they give these gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Each gift has symbology, great symbology. So let's spend a couple minutes talking about gold. As I said, Pastor Bob will nail and dial in on uh, frankincense and myrrh next week and the week after. Gold was a symbol fit for a king. It represented power, status, royalty, and wealth. It had a whole lot of different uses. You could use it as as currency, right? You can use it to, to buy stuff with. You'd use it as jewelry. It was a lavish display of your power and your wealth if you had gold. It could also be something that would lead you away from Jesus because you could make idols from it. When the the Israelites come into the promised land or they're in their desert wandering and, and Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, he's talking to God, and he's got the Ten Commandments. He comes down the mountain, and the people have thought that, that Moses has ditched them or he's died, and so they're like, we got to have a God to worship, and they make a calf out of what? Gold. Gold is also used, though, to point to something better, as a, a, a way to worship and to point to something better. Two quick examples. Exodus 25, verses 10 through 12, God is speaking to Moses about making the Ark of the Covenant, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones. It's biblical. Exodus 25, verses 10 through 12, have the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches high. Here we go. Overlay it in, inside and outside with pure gold. Run a molding of all around it. Cast four rings and attach them to its four feet, two rings on each side. Gold points to something better. We know the story of David and Goliath. David slays Goliath, Goliath drops him like a toilet seat, and then David eventually becomes the second king of Israel. And David's the second king of Israel, and he wants to build this temple, but God says, no, you're a warrior. You got blood on your hands. It's going to be your son. He has a son. The son's name is Solomon. Solomon takes over after David dies. 
And Solomon wants to build this temple. He's known as the wisest and wealthiest man of all of Israel. And Solomon builds this temple. At the time Solomon built this temple, it was estimated that it was worth three to six billion dollars several thousand years ago. So that, and because it, it was covered with gold. Let's look at this. First Kings 6, verse 21. Then Solomon overlaid the rest of the temple's interior with solid gold, and he made gold chains to protect the entrance of the most holy place. So he finished overlaying the entire temple with gold, including the altar that belonged to the most holy place. Power, royalty, status, wealth, gold. And it points to a king. Remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And he wants to express to them that Jesus is king, that that Jesus is the Messiah. He's emphasizing this. Nothing could trump the symbolic meaning of gold. It's incorruptible. It's incorruptible. It represents great value. But here's the thing. It's used as something valuable to compare against. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 7, New Testament. Peter writes, Your faith will be like gold, so it's a comparison, that has been tested in fire. And these trials will prove that your faith is worth much more than gold that can be destroyed. Whoa, wait a second. Gold can be destroyed? Because gold is not eternal. Someday gold will be out of date because everything that's not eternal is eternally out of date. They will show that that you will be given praise and honor and glory when Jesus Christ returns. Matthew's showing us here, God, I think, is showing us here that Jesus is king. That's why he deserves these gifts that the Majestanes, the Magi, that they brought. But the beauty of the story isn't the symbolism in the worth of gold. It's not. The beauty of the story is that Jesus is greater than gold. Gold points to something better, and it's Jesus. Jesus is greater than gold. Only Jesus can save you. Gold can't save you. Gold can't get you home. And there are a lot of you here today watching us online, those of you in Skagit. There are a lot of you here who have not received Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And I just want to encourage you that at some point on this side of the dirt, you've got to make a decision because wisdom can't get you home. Only Jesus can get you home. He makes it very simple. Through the Apostle Paul, he said, if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that you'll be saved, that's it. It's a done deal. I like to say, uh, uh, praying, a very simple prayer is a great starting point, simply to say, Jesus, I don't understand all this, but I want you to forgive my past and walk with me into my future because I trust you as my Savior and Lord. And then you do it. And he points you into something greater, and he'll get you home. Wisdom won't get you home. So the finest gift that these guys gave, yeah, it was, it was gold, was a nice gift. Frankincense was a nice gift. Myrrh was a nice gift. But the finest gift was something totally different. The, the finest gift fit for the King Jesus was heartfelt worship. The finest gift fit for the King was heartfelt worship. He wants your heart. That's what He wants. They saw, they bowed, They worshiped. Then they gave their gifts. All right, that doesn't mean the gifts weren't practical. The gifts were very meaningful, they were simple, and they were very useful. Let's talk about that briefly. Verses 12 and 13, Matthew 2. When it was time to leave, 
they, the wise men, returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Herod would kill every boy from the ages of zero to two in Bethlehem. Biblical scholars think it's probably like 20 to 40 boys because Bethlehem's a very small town. 20 to 40 boys massacred because of the jealousy of evil King Herod. Here's the thing. God spoke to these wise men right here. Don't you think He could speak to them to bring them to this place called Bethlehem, fulfilling all of these prophecies? God spoke to Mary and Joseph and Jesus. He spoke to Joseph and said, get your family out of there. And here's what's cool, because God always has a plan for stuff. Those gifts that they got, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, especially that gold, gold's gold's used for currency, right? So they go down to Egypt, and most likely they were staying in a Jewish settlement in Egypt. And God would say, I called my son out of Egypt. Well, they got to get by. How do they get by? Speculation. Gold. Gold allowed them to sustain themselves for that 12 to 18 months that they were down in Egypt. And you may be looking at all of this, and you may be saying, I have no gift to bring pa-rumpa-pum-pum. And that's okay. That's okay because God doesn't care how large your gift is. He cares how large your love is. He doesn't care how large your gift is. He cares how large your love is. You see, God wants your heart more than He wants your money. He wants your heart and your love more than He wants your money and your time. And when you come to Him with a heart of worship, then you can give cheerfully with your time, your treasure, and your talent. It was God's love for us that caused Him to come from heaven and leave His throne to be a humble servant who would go through a horrific, horrific torture session followed by a crucifixion to show us the face and character of God. It was God's love for us who came down from earth so that we could see the face of God, so we could relate to God. And it was God's love for us that He gave us His finest gift, Jesus. And He wants us to share that gift. One last scripture and I'll close. In 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle John would write these words. God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. And this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. For God so loved the world that He gave us His finest gift, Jesus, that whoever would believe in Him, wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. Because Jesus is eternal. He's never out of date. And a life with Jesus is eternal. It's never out of date. That's why it's so important on this side of the dirt to make that decision to follow Him. Jesus is King, and He desires and deserves our finest gifts. 
Today, what I've asked the band to do is to close us with the song, but what I want you to do is you're going to remain seated during the song. And I'm going to have, we've got a, a, a question up here on the center screen. And I would just ask that you think about this question, that you pray about this question. The question is, what do I need to surrender in my heart right now that is preventing me from giving my finest gift to Jesus? What is that thing in your life that might be present, preventing you from having a heart of worship, from having a closer relationship with Jesus? Maybe it's, maybe it's a, a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a child or a person, a spouse, a thing, a career, whatever that thing is, would you just release it? Come to the altar and present it to Jesus.